This is Legal Design Podcast. We are the hosts Henna Tolvanen and Nina Toivonen. In this episode, we discuss the role of neuro and behavioral sciences in legal design with neuroscientist Dominique Ashby. Dominique leads her own consultancy company, Neuro at Work, and advises organizations in change management and innovation using neuroscientific insights. Dominic has also worked with legal design teams, making legal processes, services, and information more engaging and easier to use. Besides the role of a neuroscientist in a legal design team, we also discuss brain health in work life. If you still brag with your working hours instead of your sleeping hours, this episode is for you. Welcome to Legal Design Podcast, Dominic. We know you are a neuroscientist uh, engaged in change management and innovation work, and a person who has also worked as a behavioral expert with legal design teams. Um, it would be interesting to hear your becoming of story, Dominic. Would you like to share it with our listeners? Absolutely. Delighted to. So my background is in neuroscience. That's the world I'm in today as well. But I did go through a career in law as well. So how did that come about? Well, I was at university finishing my neuroscience studies. And when you're faced in the science world of whether or not you continue in it, it's a world that the more experienced you become, the smaller it becomes as well. So the fewer people you get to meet through your life, you become more and more specialized. And while I was absolutely loving neuroscience and what all that studying meant, I realized I love people. So I love meeting new people, hearing their experiences, their life stories. And so the idea of carrying on with science and going into a research position wasn't really aligning with my natural personality traits. So when I was looking at what I could do next, law was one of the options. And, you know, not only is law a really great career to have, It's also looking at the psychology of fear in the business world, because what lawyers do is they understand what a client's worst fears could be in a particular context and help protect them from it. So I was interested to be able to go into a field where you could actually get to know businesses and the business world from the point of view of what can we do to protect you? And that career as a lawyer was was great. It was really interesting, really intriguing. There's an element of private practice, in-house, online product design and eventually legal operations. Um, But it was during that that time in my life where actually there's quite a lot of change going on around me um, in terms of both looking at things like the layman's collapse and generally the pace of change in the world being faster and faster. And I was noticing a theme that actually we weren't necessarily aligning change programs with what it means to be human so I along the way of the legal career I was starting to percolate a few ideas of well where could we bring neuroscience to the table and help people with it and that's ultimately why where I've ended up with my own business helping support change in a very humane way so bringing humanity back into the workplace with what we know about neuroscience and that's why I'm here chatting with you guys today, because some of that has crossed back over into the legal field as well. Yeah, wow, it's so great to have you with us, uh, Dominic. I'm looking forward to a very interesting discussion. This was such a great story, and I don't think I've ever heard more beautiful 
way of describing lawyers work yes I'm, <laughs> I'm in goosebumps <laughs> so, <which is> brilliant <laughs> well um to be honest we don't often talk about neuroscience in law and I think we need to start from the basics and bridge law in general and neuroscience for our listeners and for me so Dominic would you explain what kind of relationship neuroscience has with law A stronger and stronger one, I would say. So when I started out in the law, there wasn't really a lot of relationship between neuroscience and the law. But over the past 10 years or so, we have more of a blending between them. And there are positives and negatives to that. So, for example, in the UK, you have something called the Behavioural Insights Team that is essentially a part of the government. It was set up by a UK government and it was looking at Um, psychology, neuroeconomics and neuroscience in ways of creating public policy. And when you look at those and looking at at the way it impacts legislation, there's the positive of it's great to think that the the reason why law is is there at all is to protect humans, to protect ourselves and to protect animals and to protect whoever you want to do around us. So understanding how we can best align law to be accessible, consumable by us and to reflect what we want the best is brilliant. But there are certain elements of neuroscience, for example, nudge technique, which takes away some agency, some of the decision making and the empowerment that we have. So it's it's a double edged sword in terms of with any science, you can use it for good and you can use it for not so good. So it depends on what the relationship looks like in the law as to what it could ultimately bring. But I have to say at the moment, there's probably scope for more. There's more of a close link between neuroscience and law to increase that consumability, openness, accessibility with the people who it's intended to protect and support. Mm, Interesting. Um, As mentioned, uh, you, Dominic, have experience from working as a neuroscientist in a legal design team. Uh, And legal design may not... um, particularly aim at behavioral change or by nudging of the targeted users, but at least in some way seeks to guide their behavior to desired outcomes. Um, For example, by making contracts easier to understand and use, it's more likely that people know what is really expected of them and and they can make better informed decisions during the, the contractual relationship. Um, we would be interested to hear more about the legal design projects you have been working with, Dominic, and especially your role as a neuroscientist in those teams. For, for example, how would you define the role and responsibilities of a behavioral specialist or a neuroscientist in a legal design team? What are the superpowers you, you bring into those teams? Absolutely. So it's it's actually a really great relationship to have legal design teams. So legal design at its heart is, is putting that human back at the centre of a process or at the centre of an outcome. And so immediately, you know, there's a resonance between neuroscience, which is looking at the human at the centre and legal design. So the two really work and they go hand in hand. In terms of the roles and responsibilities that I certainly have, have been involved in, with regard to legal design teams, it's been looking at the overall piece of change around that. 
So when you look at a, a certain topic or a user journey in, use, in legal design, it's normally quite focused, targeted, a specific type of contract, a specific process that will end in a legal outcome. And what you can do by focusing in on a specific thing is for, forget the wider context. And as humans, we are impacted by everything that's around us. So we're never any one thing at any one time. And so being able to bring a bit of a wider context and view to change to say, OK, we're creating this, this process, this documentation, whatever it is we're looking at from a legal design point of view, where does that sit in the wider picture? How can we make the wider human experience positive overall? So if I bring a little bit of an example to the table, one of the projects that I've worked on with the legal design team is on looking at an overall legal transformation project, a global legal transformation and they were looking at how to re-engage the team and rebuild trust in change. There'd been a lot of talk of change in the past, and maybe starts of projects to go towards change. But then, as is often the way with life, it had fallen to the wayside when business as usual work and capacity got at a tension point. So working with the legal design team, we we're looking at an overall engagement point, an entry point of how can you get people excited and buying into the fact that change is actually going to happen this time around. And so the angle of the legal design point was understanding where the trust issues had fallen down, where to understand where the engagement piece had gone, what life generally is like, and designing that into an overall entry point that was engaging, that was sharing a lot of information in terms of what was going to come next and where people get involved. And I was looking at the side of what is the overall picture of change for that team? Where does all of this fit in? What is the journey that aligns to how our brains process change? What can we do to empower people along the way to understand more about themselves and more about where change is coming next for them? And so that, that partnering between that design angle of, of re-engaging and building trust and the overall structuring of the change program was really powerful. And um, at the end, the client had, had said in, in um, paraphrasing their words that they'd never essentially presented to an audience where they'd got a round of applause at the end when they unveiled this new new approach to change for their division. So wow. it was a really powerful, powerful moment between legal design and neuroscience. Um, in another example, I've worked on projects where we've been trying to connect um, services, public services to vulnerable audiences. So looking at how to make them more aware that services and support is available, and then how to help them interact and follow through with the process of applying for various services. And so again, it was looking at the legal design aspect of visually, what can we do? What are the steps in the user process that can be refined to make it more accessible? And then in the neuroscience way, looking, well, how do you keep people engaged along the way? How do you get them even into the mindset to think to look for change because there is change out there and support out there? So it was that, that again, that teaming up to say, okay, how can we make things more accessible where well, we can align them with the brain? And legal design ultimately does align with the human as neuroscience does. So it's, it's looking at lots of different aspects of making things more accessible, empowering people to understand what it is that's going on in their brain if they're going through periods of extensive change, and then being able to make things a lot more consumable at the end. So they've got that ability to empower them to make the right decision. Great. Can you give us an example of how in practice you, for example, in those projects, try to make them more self-aware in, in order to create trust or being, being more engaged? What kind of practical methods or tools you, you have used? 
I run a series of workshops usually, actually. So the education piece of what I do is is a lot around well, what is going on in your brains? Mm-hmm. What is it that you experience during change as just default for the way that our brains are designed? And what can you do to regain control? Because that's something that we often feel we lose during times of change. I know that a lot of us have felt that over the last 18 months in particular. So having a look at actually what is it that we can explain and translate into practical tools that you can take forward to, for example, get the most out of your mental energy during a day, to know what types of activities actually can really inspire us and engage us and where we can use those during times of change. So it's all about that education piece to help people understand what makes them tick and how to get the best out of themselves. And I'm always very open in terms of the the plans that I design for change, the roadmaps, they're based around this. So actually, if you know my basis for structuring things, then you're going to understand where I'm coming from and where your organization is coming from because they've hired me to help you. So it's all a very open process that gives people agency and empowerment to make the most of, of change experiences. And that's something, again, that that we don't always see that empowerment piece to give people control and choice, because when you look at big organisations in particular, when they're going through change, there's a lot of just get it done, just push it down to people. And that sadly doesn't work. Like there's a statistic that McKinsey uses that says that 70 percent of change programmes fail and the majority of them fail because humans haven't changed. We've just forced things on people and they've not wanted to change so being able to empower people to understand the process of change it's physical it's physiological what can they do to make it a better experience and what can they do to be able to to just protect themselves with their mental energy as well when there's a lot going on yeah I love this idea that there is this learning uh, aspect and educational aspect that people actually get to learn about neuroscience themselves when they are participating uh, in a le- such a legal design or change management project themselves. Hey, this might be a funny question, but how do lawyer clients react when there is a neuroscientist on a legal design team that they hired? <laughs> it's a great question. I mean, I guess to be honest, I only see the positive because I only see the ones that hire us. So <laughs> obviously involved in, in the excitement of neuroscience and buy into it. But more generally speaking, I started my business seven or eight years ago. And at the start, it the conversations that I had with potential clients were: so you're saying this is scientific and you can get it done. And then the conversation was, I don't care how. So it was kind of a closed shop of, oh, it's neuroscience. Well, good, but I don't really want to know more. Just I want to know it works. Versus, (laughs) well, it's, I mean, and that's fair. You've got as a, you know, as a business person, you've got to match your market. But over the past five or six years, it started to evolve. So we've all become a little bit more curious about why we are the way we are. And so now it's definitely a, I would say, a selling point, a USP in the business term. Of, of saying, well, actually, I, I, I base things in neuroscience and I can also educate you on the neuroscience angle if you want. And that's a lot more of a, a common conversation that I'm having now than it was when I first started my business. And so that it's the the maturity of, of who we are as a, as a society and thinking, actually, 
we do want to know what's going on in ourselves and we want to be able to use that to help ourselves and to help others. And so that's where where we are today. I think overall is that it's it's slightly more open mindset on the client side than it was at the start of my journey. Okay, that's great. I was just wondering about this. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) So, um, well, as I mentioned, uh, this is a topic that I personally don't know almost anything about. But um, thanks for all the introductions already. And while I was preparing for this podcast episode, I came across something called neurodesign. And if I understood correctly, neurodesign is a new, well, or relatively new, and growing field that applies insights from the mind sciences to help craft more effective designs. So in legal, if our goal is to design better and in a way more effective laws, do you think, Dominic, that legislators uh, should include neuroscientists in the legislation processes to optimize law and the legal system? So it goes back to the original point of, yes, if the intent is to empower people. If it's not, then I would say no. So neurodesign, where we look at how the brain processes visual information, so colour first, then images, then meaning, is interesting because that's attention grabbing and then helping to essentially embed a message with someone. And if that helps alert people to helpful services, if it helps to bring their attention to something which then gives them a choice, then yes. If it's trying to sell them something or trying to force them to act in a certain way passively, even if they don't realize it's, it's being done to them, then, then no. And so I think that's that's the, the difficulty with, with, as I say, any scientific discovery or any scientific principle is that it can be used for positive and for, for more negative purposes. I think when legislation is being designed, it can sometimes be that it loses the connection with the human. So there's there's that need at the center of it. So whether it's to protect and build trust in, for example, financial services, that's one of the biggest highly regulated areas over the, our recent past. When you look at the legislation that comes out, it can sometimes be removed from the actual human outcome of that trust. So perhaps having neuroscientists, behavioural scientists that help just at various points reconnect or ask the question of from a lived experience of the people who are meant to be beneficiaries of this, what does it look like? And also from the lived experience of people who are having to comply with this, what does it look like? Because if you draft a, a piece of legislation that's really hard to comply with that isn't going to meet reality, then of course it's going to fall by the wayside. So I think there's there's a role in terms of just helping keep people focused on the human at the heart of legislation. That's somewhere where neuroscientists can really help. But in terms of creating things that take away the agency and control, I think that's a dangerous road to go down. Building on that, um, I've been following some interesting behavioral scientists and behavioral designers on LinkedIn lately. And One of the subjects many of them seem to have been uh, concerned about recently is the misuse or misapplication of behavioral research data. For example, when designing policy interventions based on, uh, for example, researches that have not been replicated. And well, in general, the use of behavioral insights seems to be pretty trendy these days. 
but at the same time, not everyone who do that or promote that to really um, understand it. Um, uh, in your view, Dominic, what are the, the main challenges of using behavioral insights or neuroscientific uh, data in, in legal design if we're now talking about just like um, not, not policy design, uh, which is like a maybe a more um, bigger and wider issue, but we're, we're talking about when company is wants to uh, buy a legal design project and then there's a, and that they start to use these behavioral insights there. What are the, the, the biggest uh, issues they should be aware of? A great question. I think you've got to go to the root of what behavioral science is and science in general. So there's a theme. The more we discover in science, the more we realize we don't know. So that's one thing that, that certainly stayed with me during my studies was the more I learned, the more I realized we, we just don't know a lot about anything, really. There's yeah. a lot of answers out there. Mm -hmm. And in terms of actual behavioral studies, there are studies that are a mix of human, some animal studies, which, while you know, ethically not aligned to, that's the reality, and a bit of in vitro in neuroscience in particular. So it's a mixed bag in terms of what the results can, can be replicated in. Now, what I would also go back to as a principle of the science is that it is at its core a test and learn process. So scientific discoveries provide a starting point from which we can find out more. And as humans, we love to constantly learn and we learn the more we do. So what I would say is that using behavioral science, what we know today, as a basis, a foundation, as a starting point to guide certain approaches in legal design is really positive. And the legal design process is all about user journey and there's elements of iteration, ideation, iteration, testing and learning. So legal design, again, it aligns very much with science generally because of the process it uses to get to its end product. And when we look at, at what behavioral science is telling us today, there are some fundamentals that feel that they're quite foundational and probably won't change, but how we apply them, as long as it empowers people, and as long as we learn through a process of legal design of what works with our audience that we're looking to look at, we are in, in essence creating more data and more science. So replication is happening through legal design and reinforcing other areas of science through the process itself. So for, if I'm talking to a, a client, I would say, okay, well, look, what are your needs? Let's have a look at them. And as we design, the process will be to test with your audience. So we'll understand which of these particular behavioral science inputs are a match or help support your people as we go through it. And that's the idea. Again, it's empowerment, it's control, it's tailoring, it's understanding and learning together where the behavioral science and neuroscience can support that particular client. To be on the safe side, do you think there always should be a behavioral expert in the legal design team? Um, I don't think it's necessarily a safe side. It's more what you're looking to get out of your legal design process. So if there is a lot of, I guess, a significant shift between what people are thinking, feeling, doing today versus where you want to go, then behavioral science can support you with a safe space through that mm. and give you some guidelines. 
if it's quite a, a minor change, then you probably won't need behavioral science in the same way. So it, it depends again on your needs. It's matching the needs to the science and the technical design team. Interesting. Um, if we move on to working life and if we can design it more brain friendly, I think it's common knowledge that a lot of lawyers work long hours and draft documents in the middle of the night. And then there's something and some people getting up at 5 a.m. to do some personal development that is called winning. And while the lack of sleep might work with someone, I just don't know with whom, it is clear that humans and their brains are not meant to do lawyering for 100 hours per week. How do you say this, Dominic? Are those lawyers who actually work 100 hours per week and never sleep, are they some sort of superhumans with exceptional brain capacity because they think that they can work such long hours? Or should they start start to believe that um, they don't have super brains and they should start to focus on work-life balance and learn how to sleep at night instead of working? So I feel like that could be a rhetorical question. <laughs> <You're not there. laughs> yeah, I mean, these are just imaginary people. Yes, absolutely. Um, we don't know anyone who does that. Not at all, not at all. I've definitely not done that in my life. Of course not. Um, yeah, I, it's, I don't want to, to negate the amazing efforts that people who are doing working long hours are doing at the moment. I, you know, there's, there's nothing to say that they're not superhuman in that sense, but a neurotypical brain, and I'm going to be honest, the legal industry, it's still the most prevalent type of, of brain status that we have. It comes with standard programming and needs. So, so there is a standardization process. And one of those features of our brain is that it has a a set amount of mental energy to use during a day it's like our phones at the end of the day the battery is low and we need to recharge and for humans recharging is sleep that's its primary recharge mechanism and while we sleep it does a, a few amazing things the first thing is that it washes the brain it's like a dishwasher dishwasher cycle so it clears out all of the natural toxic byproducts that have accumulated during the, the normal functioning of the brain, cleans them away, washes it and resets the brain with the right chemical balance to start and be its most productive the next day. So ideas where if we're if we're scrimping on the amount of sleep that we physiologically naturally need as an individual, we're essentially starting our day like we've put on half washed, wet, still dirty clothes. I mean, that visualization shows actually it's not an ideal starting point. And linked to that more worryingly is the, the research in dementia and Alzheimer's is very much pointing into the direction that those toxic byproducts, actually it's that accumulation that's linked to dementia and certain forms of, of Alzheimer's as well. So if we don't wash our brain during the night properly, there's a thought and a link that actually could then be more at risk of, of dementia and Alzheimer's later in life. So that when I share that with, with my, um, my clients often helps reprioritize sleep from a very selfish point of view as well. If you, exactly. if you want to have a happy brain for longer than sleep. So that, that, I mean, that itself normally helps rephrase a conversation around working hours and length, but it also um, if you really want to be superhuman, 
you want to sleep because a second really important function of the brain during night is that it continues to subconsciously process information received during the day. So it also works on open problems and questions we have. So you know how, how it's always been kind of a saying of if you've got a big decision to make, sleep on it. The neuroscience backs that up. If we have a big decision to make or we're working on a big drafting problem or we're trying to create a new design, sleeping on it means that our brain continues to work on it and we wake up with a better position, starting position. So actually, if you want to create a power week, which, you know, 100 working hours used to be kind of like the power week of the lawyer, then you actually want to add in your sleep because you're more powerful for it. So that alpha version, alpha male, alpha female, hopefully we're going to start bragging about the number of hours sleep we get because that is something exactly. that makes us so much more powerful in the workplace. And then the final point of those really long hours without with minimal sleep is that, you know, our body's made up of muscles that includes our eyes. And when we think about the legal profession being a lot about reading and focusing and identifying mistakes in documents and making sure things track through and and you know ultimately all make sense i mean there's a there's a not only we run out of mental energy not only are we working with a half-washed brain also our eyes just aren't focusing they're exhausted the muscles are exhausting because they're not getting enough sleep so while i think that every human being is a superhuman because we all live such wide varied experiences Good point. I, would say, I would have to say that the lawyer of tomorrow will hopefully be bragging about the amount of sleep they do and how productive and efficient in the hours that they work they are. So that's that's where I'm hoping. And that's the realization that a lot of the clients I work with in the legal profession are having. Maybe we should actually have um, like part of our bonus programs <laughs> should be listed like hours you sleep per night. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> Well, luckily, uh, also, we are participating in this discussion of well-being, which has be, become one more um, general these days, and also the importance of well-being at work. It's a, it's a topic people are more conscious about. And also, in the legal industry, uh, following the trend of people working too long hours, just sitting in front of their laptops from one deadline to another, at the expense of their physical and mental health. Um, and in this regard, there has been discussion about our brains and how work should be organized and the social relationships at work should be organized to support optimal brain health. Um, what are your views about this as a neuroscientist, uh, Dominic? What kind of working environments and conditions should we create to support the optimal functioning of our brains? It's a great question. And again, what I've been working a lot with clients on in terms of designing those hybrid working policies, what does the, the world of today look like versus what it did before the pandemic? And so there's there's a lot of things you can do. So one of my workshops, I talked about the mental energy one. It looks at how you set the ideal foundations for the brain to be at its best, how you structure your day to align it with your brain, what activities you schedule for when, and looks at how can you give your brain micro boosts. So if you're running low on mental energy and it's not yet time to sleep, what can you do to just boost it until you do get that chance to do the full recharge? And neuroscience can really help us 
be our best. And the key thing about about being well-being in general is that it's a balance. You're being able to balance what matters most to you throughout your day. And when you think about mental energy in particular, a lot of us, if we don't structure our days to align with our brain, could end up without the mental energy we need to go and socialize afterwards to see our family and friends. So a lot of what I do in terms of helping companies design ways of working, hybrid working policies, is to not only get the best out of employees while they're in the workplace, but also to give employees enough mental energy to have outside of the workplace, which overall increases well-being. So it's, it's again, everything I suggest is applicable at a weekend as it would be in a week as well, so that you can structure your life to be the best no matter where you are. And when we look more generally at working environments, we look at, well, actually a key part of that is flexibility is that perception of control and autonomy of what you do so being able to decide that you can work from home for certain days because it it's would be more productive for you is really key to maintain so while during the pandemic we were all essentially forced to be working from home when in the legal profession especially having the ability to create your own ways of working is is really really key going forward so mandating three days in the office together to just work probably isn't going to be aligned to the majority of people so it's again thinking more generally about if you've got a working environment at home where things like getting on with tasks high focus tasks at home you're really good if you've got an environment where you're not interrupted collaborative co-creation tasks catch up on client relationships those are done really well in person from the natural way our brains work so it's a really good kind of balance of seeing what is individual needs at the physiological level the neuroscientific level and what can you do to get the best out of the brain in in team environments and team conditions and creating that essentially patchwork or quilt that's right for you and your organization and so it's, it's different for everyone. Um, one client that I, I've worked with talked about moments that matter and their, their hybrid policy is based around that. So it's not prescriptive of numbers of days in the office. It's very much around what you as a team decide are moments that matter, where you should come into an office together and experience them. And so there's a lot of flexibility, a lot of control, but also a lot of agreement and collaboration and buy-in because the team has defined that, what it means for them. So what I'm seeing at the moment is a change in how my clients position me and my services to their internal audiences. When I first started doing this, it was very much around change, project management, strategy, that side of stuff. Now it's very much focused on well-being and creating positive working environments. So there's a definite shift in focus and seeing the value of well-being. And that's not only from a push from the the employee side of saying this matters to us and you've seen how how important it is to us over the past 18 months it's also again from the employer side saying well-being happy productive people are what's going to be the best return investment for us so actually if we can get well-being right then we have a far better position from the strength of point of view of business brilliant thank you Thank you, Dominic, for being our guest. Uh, this has been a great discussion and I have loved every minute of it. Thank you for listening to the Legal Design Podcast. 
get to know us at legaldesignpodcast.com. 